0: I remember that no one was able to speak their traditional language. And if we did, we were beaten, we were thrown up against a wall, we were slapped, we were punished.
1: Josie Nipenak is Anishinaabe and a survivor of Canada's residential school system.
0: Canada needs to be held accountable for the genocide, for the crimes against humanity because these are somebody's children.
1: For more than a century, Indigenous children were forcibly taken from their families to these schools to be assimilated into Canadian society. Survivors have reported that all kinds of abuse happened there. And then in May...
0: Devastating discovery has been made in Canada.
1: The first mass burial site with the remains of 215 children was discovered on the grounds of a former residential school.
2: The remains were discovered in Kamloops, British Columbia.
1: This week, less than a month later, a First Nations official announced the discovery of 761 unmarked graves at the site of another former residential school.
2: Marivelle Residential School was situated on what is now part of the Cowessess First Nation, east of Regina.
1: Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has publicly apologized for Canada's history with its Indigenous people.
3: I'm appalled by the shameful policy that stole Indigenous children from their communities.
1: But when it comes to reparations, many say his government's actions do not reflect his words. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. Canada marked its annual National Indigenous Peoples Day on June 21st. But some Indigenous people have conflicted feelings about it.
3: It's great that we have a day that recognizes Indigenous peoples and our culture, but it's confusing for me.
1: This is Brandy Morn. She's a Cree-Iroquois French journalist.
3: On one hand, we have people in this country that are working towards reconciliation. And then on the other, we have a very systemically racist systems across the board that continue to oppress our people. It's hard for me to celebrate in those circumstances.
1: Especially when those circumstances include the recent discovery of a mass grave, this one at the Kamloops Indian Residential School in British Columbia. So what did you think when you first heard that news?
3: I wasn't surprised. We knew about this. We have known about these mass graves that exist across Canada for years. Not only have survivors shared their experiences of having to dig graves for their fellow students or witnessed kids dying or in some circumstances being murdered. These were all documented by the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. The Truth
1: and Reconciliation Commission of Canada, TRC, was created in 2008 to document the history and impacts of the Canadian Indian residential school system on Indigenous people. This commission determined that Canada committed cultural genocide by forcing more than 150,000 Indigenous children to attend residential schools in the country between the 1870s and 1990s. In 2015, the TRC issued 94 calls to action, and by December of last year, the Yellowhead Institute, a First Nations-led research centre based at Ryerson University, said that only eight of those calls to action had been implemented by the Canadian government.
3: In those calls to actions were several towards governments to put resources into locating these mass graves, documenting them and making reparations and consulting with Indigenous communities as to how to commemorate them or or relocate them. At the time, you know, the funding asks were really low and the government turned that request down. And now six years later, this has come up. And Indigenous communities are taking actions themselves to locate their missing children. And there's a lot of pressure on the government to help fund these initiatives. How would
1: you describe the residential school system?
3: It was started in the late 1800s, shortly after Canada introduced the Indian Act, which was an oppressive legislation that basically controlled every aspect of First Nations' lives. And one of the goals under that assimilative agenda was to send Indigenous children to colonial schools that were run by different churches in Canada, so we had the Catholic Church, Anglican churches, and a couple other churches. This was required by law, so they were forcibly taken from their families. If families didn't comply to send their children away to residential school, then the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, the RCMP, would get involved and threaten the parents with jail. Oftentimes parents were jailed, and the children would be taken for years at a time to live at these schools and be taught the European culture. Oftentimes these kids weren't even educated properly. Sometimes these schools were used as a guise for slave labor. A lot of times families would hide their children or tell their children to run away so that they weren't taken to these residential schools. In these residential schools was rampant abuse abuses of all kinds so it just created a generation of broken and displaced people they were made to be ashamed of who they were as indigenous children they were told that they were worthless good-for-nothing savages
1: the last residential school in canada closed in 1996 Brandy says the trauma these schools inflicted on people is still very present in the day-to-day lives of the Indigenous communities.
3: I was 16 years old when the last schools closed. It's not ancient history. There are survivors that are still living among us, thousands of them across the country, not to mention intergenerational survivors, which I am one of them. My grandmother attended residential school and we have the effects of that that have affected our lives.
1: You've talked to survivors of the residential schools. What have they told you about this news and how they're grappling with it?
3: I had a survivor call me a few days after the discovery, and she had told me how she hadn't slept for days and how this had unleashed just such a grief and a mourning. For her, and she said, it feels like I'm at a funeral. And she said, this has brought up so much for me and it's so painful.
1: We reached out to another survivor.
3: I'm
0: Josie Nipanak, and I am executive director for Awadan Healing Lodge Society in Calgary. I am 62
1: years old. You heard Josie at the start of this episode. We reached her at her home in Calgary and asked how she felt when she heard about the discovery of the mass burial site.
0: When I heard about the kids uh, in Kamloops and the unmarked graves, 215 babies, and I was, def- I- I'm still devastated. The impact was, is, is so great that it takes you back to, to that environment where there is no love. As children, we had no recourse. We had no one to tell what was happening, and if we did, our families would get into trouble. For example, if my papa came to the school and said, I'm removing you from this school, he would literally be arrested and thrown in jail or in prison for that.
1: Josie started at her first residential school in September of 1963. She was just five years old.
0: I attended two residential schools. One was Pine Creek Indian Residential School, and the other one was called McKay Indian Residential School. I remember seeing children as young as three years old in the residential school, and these were just babies.
1: She told us about the abuses she and other kids went through if they spoke their native languages. But that wasn't all.
0: For example, like I was thrown down the, the, the stairs when I was trying to get away from one of the nuns. I didn't break any bones that I could remember or maybe I did, I don't know. We were introduced to food that was fairly new to us. I remember being forced to eat cream corn and I did not like cream corn and I, I actually vomited because I was forced fed. bed. They would take the vomit and rub it into your hair and call you little heathens and that, that we were uh, ungrateful for the food that we had. Everything was extreme. They had a leather strap that they would use to strap us with, and they would use rulers with the metal edges on them to hit us as well until we could no longer bend our hands.
1: But the abuse wasn't only physical. We
0: also had emotional abuse where, for example, if you didn't behave, I was often put into a a black room about the size of a small bathroom. And in that room, I was told by the nuns to pray hard because if I didn't, that the devil would come to get me. And I actually believed that. And uh, I remember hyperventilating and at times I'm sure I passed out in that little black room because of the fear and the anxiety that I felt in there.
1: Josie told us that her great-grandfather, her father, and her mother all went to residential schools. She said her family has been through generational trauma.
0: What I see as happened is genocide, forced removal of, at, at least in my family, four generations of family into the residential school. My little cousin, his name was Albert, and he was 11 years old, and this was in 1951. And he wanted to go home. And his home was approximately four and a half miles from from the residential school. And he ran away and he fell into a creek. And this was in April, so it was already cold. And he came out of the creek and he nestled himself into a haystack and fell asleep there and froze to death. He was only a mile and a half away from home at that point. And then... This is the way of the Catholic church. This is the way is even in his death, my family, my great aunt and uncle could not say how his body would be brought back to the community. The church, the, the residential school officials took his body and they put him in a wooden box and they took him into the classroom of grade three and four. And they said, if you run away, This is what's going to happen to you. This is an example. My uncles were in that classroom and they watched what happened. And his mom and dad were never the same after that. Canada needs to be held accountable for the genocide, for the crimes against humanity, because these are somebody's children. These are somebody who needs to nurture That child to grow into a healthy individual. Those children did not have that chance. I'm sorry. There's thousands of little bodies out there, thousands of babies.
1: Josie said that for the longest, she didn't realize the consequences her childhood had on her.
0: To this day, I continue to have nightmares quite frequently. You learn to live with what happened, you learn to live with post-traumatic stress disorder which i've been diagnosed with you learn to live with the anxiety and uh, depression and uh, i just thought this is the way i am this is who i am and this is how i cope and not necessarily in the best ways but i realize now and i understand that most of my life was spent in living in that traumatic situation I think that I think healing needs to happen. The community needs to be resourced to be able to have healing and and to have reconciliation reconciliation that is meaningful. We're not interested in having little crumbs thrown at us. We're not looking for handouts. We are looking for what was taken from us.
1: With the closure of the last residential school in 1996, one chapter was over. But the suffering continues. Indigenous communities say that there are new ways the Canadian government harms their children. And for the last 14 years, they've been fighting in court for compensation in a different case. The underfunding of child welfare for First Nations children.
2: My name is Cindy Blackstock and I'm the executive director of the First Nations Child and Family Caring Society.
1: Cindy works for a national nonprofit organization that looks out for the rights of First Nations children and their families.
2: In 2016, the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal made a legal order against the Canadian government finding that it was racially discriminating against at least 165,000 children by underfunding these services in ways that were leading to family separations that were unnecessary, harms to children, and sadly, even the deaths of some children. The government paraded out, welcomed the decision, and then they didn't
1: comply. This is why Cindy has been in court for almost a decade and a half. The Trudeau administration is seeking to overturn two orders by the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal that Cindy's just mentioned. One is about awarding compensation of up to $40,000 to Indigenous children who were unnecessarily removed from their families or who suffered as a result of discriminatory underfunding of child welfare services. And the other order the government is fighting is the expansion of Indigenous rights through Jordan's Principle, a legal status that's meant to ensure that Indigenous children have access to health and social services.
2: So we're now up to 19 procedural and non-compliance orders against the Canadian state. They said, even though we agree we harmed all these kids, we don't want to pay them $40,000 each in compensation. We don't want to pay them anything. Their documents say clearly that. Their public statements say, oh, we want to compensate. But they haven't done anything.
1: Cindy said that she's concerned about Trudeau's handling of the case.
2: He's big on symbolism and big on holding other people accountable, while his government goes unaccountable. They do not have any serious remorse about the harms that they foisted on these families. And you listen to their language, and they're very happy to talk about historical wrongs, but they're really reluctant to be held accountable themselves for the ongoing harms and ongoing discrimination towards First Nations families.
1: However, she is hopeful.
2: I have uh, what I would say grounded hope in reality. And that is what I've seen is that Canadians are becoming much more educated about this and they just can see through the vacuous arguments of the federal government in a way that was not possible before. And that's really positive, but we need to keep it going. And I would love to see the international community actually look when they're signing trade agreements with Canada. Do the invigilation on Canada's human rights record with an eye to looking at what it's doing to First Nations children.
1: But it's not just the government. Survivors from the residential school system and their families are also seeking reparations and accountability from the churches involved. We brought that up with Brandy Morn, the journalist you heard from earlier. Justin Trudeau has asked the Pope to apologize for the role of the Catholic Church in this school system.
3: I directly asked uh, His Holiness uh, Pope Francis to move forward. On apologizing, on asking for forgiveness, on restitution.
1: The Pope has expressed his pain, but he has not apologized. How important is this apology to the Indigenous community?
3: From what I understand, from what I've heard from survivors and Indigenous leaders, it's really crucial to have that apology and acknowledgement in order to solidify what happened and to provide dignity to a lot of these survivors i don't think that in the long run that it will prevent us from healing and moving forward as a people
1: many see that the pace of truth and reconciliation is happening too slowly survivors are aging passing away what do you make of the pace of this process,
3: Right now, we're living in continued colonial violence and oppression. So how can you achieve true reconciliation when this is still going on? I don't think that it's going to be achieved in our generation, and it's going to take a while. So how
1: will you know when you've got there? What will true reconciliation and true healing look like?
3: True reconciliation, it's not just a nice, I'm sorry, let's move on. It's actions and it involves giving land back, allowing indigenous peoples to care for their territories. When our people are thriving, when we are living and in our cultures and proudly sharing that and thriving in our own economies, alongside the settler population because that was the original aim of the sacred covenants that were signed upon the foundings of this nation. To live together peacefully, side by side, to thrive and to grow and to utilize the land and the resources for as long as the grass grows and the rivers flow. And that's The Take.
1: This episode was produced by Ney Alvarez, with Nagin Oliyei, Dina Kisbe, Priyanka Tilvey, Alexandra Locke, Amy Walters, and me, Malika Bilal. Alex Rodan is our sound designer. Aya el Mileik is our engagement producer. Tom Finton is our story editor. And Stacey Samuel is The Take's executive producer. Special thanks to Gillian Kessler-Demore. We'll be back on Monday.